The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, I, uh, I have a little bit of an unusual message to preach for a Thanksgiving service. As a matter of fact, you might think that this has nothing at all to do with Thanksgiving, but eventually, hopefully, it'll come to you that uh, there is much to give thanks for in this message today. I'm not always known for preaching predictable, predictable things on holidays. There's only one thing that's predictable about me, and that is I'm not going to stop till I get done. So I, it, no matter how hungry you get, you just have to wait until we get all the way through this today. L- open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. And we're continuing to study in the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the last three chapters, which will lead us up to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, is the central event in all of Christianity. And this chapter, chapter 26, is a prelude to his death. It will be pictured in the institution of the Lord's Supper. And next week and a couple of weeks following that, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. And in that picture, uh, Christ gave a, a beautiful emblem of his suffering and his death and what he would do for us on the cross of Calvary. But previous to that, we have the story of Judas, the one who betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ in the most dastardly act of treason that the world has ever known. Matthew is the only gospel writer that mentions the amount that was given for Jesus' betrayal. Uh, It was 30 pieces of silver. And he puts that right up next to a beautiful picture uh, just before that of a woman who brought a very costly alabaster vial of ointment, ointment, and she poured it out on our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the passage that we're going to read today... Uh, We're at the beginning of the Passover meal that Jesus would celebrate with his disciples. And this comes before the intimacy of the Lord's Supper. Before that starts, Judas went out to complete his act of betrayal. Now today what we're going to look at is the activities in the few minutes before the Lord's Supper took place as Jesus interacts with the disciples to identify the antagonist, the one who's going to betray him. Now, if you look at Matthew 26, and let's just stand again, if you would, please, for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 26, verse number 20. Now, when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish... The same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. Thank you for this great crowd that we have this morning to hear the word of God preached and to enjoy our fellowship afterwards. Bless us, Lord. Help us to learn something from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Verse number 20 says, Now when the even was come, he sat down 
with the twelve. Last month when I was on vacation, this is the passage of Scripture that I was considering as I was riding or sailing, I guess you would say, in that Navy destroyer coming across the Pacific from Hawaii to San Diego. And every night I lay in this little bed that the sailors call their rack, or some of them call it a coffin, and that's because it's, it's enclosed on three sides and just barely enough room to turn over. And every night during that week, I would lie in the bed, and I would look at this passage of Scripture, and I would try to figure out what can I say about this? What, what is there in this Scripture that uh, we, we could bring out today and just talk to you about so we could learn something from the Word of God? Now, as usual, the, the Bible is a, a deep well, and I found that there is much to talk about here. In fact, more than I can actually deal with in one message. And that's often the case that when you look at Scripture, uh, when there seems to be very little that's there, when you begin to study the Word of God, you can find that there are things that just become overwhelming in their significance. And so I looked at the passage, and I wondered, well, what, what, what is it that we can talk about today from this Scripture? The first thing that came to my mind as I looked at it was the chronology of the Passover, the chronology of it. Now, this evening, on this evening, Jesus sat down with his disciples, and I can tell you that if you study the Bible much and you listen to people, there is a lot of discussion about when this dinner actually took place. Some say that it was on Thursday night. Uh, the Passover was celebrated on the 15th of the month Nisan, according to the Hebrew calendar. That would have been Thursday. And so Jesus was, would have been put on the cross on Friday, just prior to the Saturday Sabbath. However, when we look into the Gospel of John, John indicates that this meal actually took place the day before, and so that would make it Wednesday night. Now, I don't have time to go into all the problems that people deal with that are associated with that issue, but if it was Wednesday that, that they ate the meal, then it means that Jesus was not crucified on Friday. Now, as most of you know, it's common to believe that the crucifixion took place on Friday because the Scripture says that the next day was uh, the Sabbath, or maybe we should say a Sabbath, which was Saturday. And, of course, Roman Catholicism has always made a big to-do about Christ being crucified on a Friday, even going so far as to memorialize it for a time by forbidding people to eat fish on Friday. But when you look at doctrines of Roman Catholicism, you always have to look at that with a very close eye because there's so much that's gone wrong there. You have to carefully scrutinize the, the entire system and what they say. So what you need to understand about Sabbath is that the Sabbath does not mean Saturday, as some people think. Sabbath doesn't mean Saturday. Sabbath means rest. And so the next day after Jesus was crucified was to be a day of rest. Now, there were many Sabbaths that the, that the uh, children of Israel, the Jews, celebrated. And the Gospel of John, it says that this was a high Sabbath. And that would indicate that it's not the normal Saturday Sabbath that they would have. But rather, this looks like a, a different Sabbath. And the real time that this meal took place was on Wednesday evening. And so, Jesus was crucified on Thursday which means that he would have spent three days and three nights in the tomb as he himself described in John chapter 12. He said, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so that shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Thursday would have been the 
Passover day, the regular preparation for the Passover, and Jesus was put on the cross at the exact time that the Passover lambs in Jerusalem were slain. And I think that it's also very likely that at the beginning of this week, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, that he came in through the sheep gate, the very place where all the, uh, the, the lambs were herded into the city to be slain at the temple. And I think that what the scripture is showing us is the tight connection, the very close connection between Jesus being the Passover lamb that was to be sacrificed so that he would be crucified on the exact day that all of these lambs throughout Israel were being killed. Now that sticks with, I think, or keeps us close to the Old Testament picture of Passover. John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians said that Christ is our Passover who is crucified for us. Oh, it seems to me that the timing of this is very exact, that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures that on the very day that the lambs were slain for sacrifice, there was Jesus hanging on the cross as our Passover lamb. Now, we've noted many times in our observances of the Lord's Supper that the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, is the price of our redemption. That it is the blood of Christ that actually covers our sin. That's the protection from the wrath of God. And that blood that was shed on the Passover night in Israel, that was emblematic of the blood of Jesus Christ that would be shed to cover our sins. Now, this is what it says in Exodus chapter 12 on the night that the Passover was instituted. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in under your houses to smite you. And so that pictures the blood of Christ, the, the blood that satisfies the justice of God. And when God sees that the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to your heart through faith in Jesus Christ, then he passes over you in judgment. Now, I believe that that is the actual chronology of this meal with the disciples, that it did occur on Wednesday evening, and then on the day of the Passover, which was Thursday, that's when the Paschal Lamb was crucified. Now, the second observation that, as I looked at this text, is the sovereignty of the Savior. And I told you when we began the chapter that we would often meet with the sovereignty of God, and over and over we see that uh, displayed in the chapter, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. This was an eternally planned event. So Jesus wasn't a victim of crucifixion. This was planned. It went all the way back to the beginning, to the very foundation of the world. And every detail of the plan was precisely carried out according to the way that God said it should be done. And we see that in this scripture, that, that the scriptures are careful to note that the 1,500-year history of the Passover would be perfectly fulfilled by Christ. We read in verse number 21, And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. 
And Christ knew that this was going to happen. Not only that he would be betrayed, but he also knew who the one was that would betray him. In the 23rd verse it says, And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. And then going on to the 24th verse, he said, The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. Now many times in the Old Testament there are indications that the Savior would be a suffering Savior. Isaiah 53 is the most famous of those passages. And Jesus knew that he would have to go through all of the sorrows, the pain, the grief, and the humiliation that we find in that chapter. Now all of that gives us one very crucial point of understanding, and that is Jesus was in charge. That Jesus was totally in charge of every step that would happen. And he was already telling his disciples what would happen way back in chapter 12. In chapter 16, he repeated the same information. And then in chapter 17, he was already telling them that there would be one who would betray him. So each step of the way, he knew it. And every day, he was walking alongside of the one who would be the one who would betray him, knowing what that person would do. And yet, Judas was not even aware himself of that. He didn't know that Christ had chosen him and put him into the group for this particular purpose. This is the one who's going to betray him. Now, I know there are many people that have trouble with that, but we, we can't deny it because it's so clearly stated in both the Old and the New Testaments. And so at any point, Jesus could have stopped that. He could have stopped the crucifixion. He knew all the way back in chapter 12 what would happen, so we, what he could have done was just stayed in Galilee. He was wildly popular in Galilee. Why would he go to Jerusalem, which was the hotbed of all the controversy concerning him? It was the place of the Jews' power. Why would he go there with all the mounting hostilities when he was sure to be crucified? Well, verse 24 says that he was going as the Scriptures had written. He would be betrayed just as Scripture said. And he was the divine author of those scriptures. If he wanted, he could have changed them. He could have written the scriptures differently. And you need to think about this. As you think about the death of Christ for you, you have to remember this. His death is precious because it was for you, and he wasn't cornered into it. He didn't stumble into it. No, he and the Holy Spirit and the Father from the council halls of eternity and eternity past decided that this was what was going to happen. He would come to give his life for sin. Now the story could have been written much differently. Even when the fall came and between the fall and the cross, we could have a different story. But God showed his love for man for Christ becoming a willing sacrifice to go to the cross without any regret. There was no fear. There was no hesitation. There was no sadness in it. There were no reconsiderations. As the scripture said, Hebrews tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And do you know what the joy of Christ was? It was to do the Father's will. It was to have a spiritual seed. It was to have a people for his name that he would give eternal life. And the joy of that was greater than the humiliation of the cross. Now there's much to think about when we think of Christ's suffering and death. 
We need to think about how much that we owe him for what he freely did. How much should we glorify Christ in our lives for the incomparable sacrifice that he made? What did Christ do? He died to save us from hell. He was the just dying for the unjust. While we were sinners, the Bible said, Christ died for us. And yet, when you go to most churches and you hear most preaching, you'd never know what was the actual purpose of Christ's death. No one preaches any longer about what vile sinners we are. No one talks about how we should receive the just deserts of our sins, which is an eternity in hell. Jesus didn't die for us as a moral example. Jesus died for us as a penal substitute, taking the sin that we committed upon himself and freely doing it. Now, if we are to take then the example of how to preach, where would we find the best example? Well, we would take it from the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught about hell. He said there's a hell that you need to be saved from. And you might not even recognize it, but right here in these six verses, Jesus deals with eternal punishment. He actually reiterates eternal punishment here. Now, that brings me to point number three, and that is the reality of punishment. Look what he, look what he says in the second part of verse 24. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, do you understand what that means? It shows us that there is no such thing as universalism. Now, if you don't understand universalism, that's a doctrine that says that eventually everybody's going to be saved, everybody's going to go to heaven. By whatever method it might be, everybody's going to end up in heaven. But Jesus said that it was good for Judas, it would be good for him that he would not have been born. And he wouldn't have said that if Judas was going to be in heaven. No, he says it's better that he'd not been born because hell was the destination. Judas was a sinner like all of us, and he was deserving of hell and not believing in Christ, not a believer in Christ like many of us. Now, all of us, or I think everyone here, most of us, we, we would freely agree with this, that we've made mistakes, that um, we were not perfect, and the admission that we're not perfect is the admission that we fall short of the glory of God, just like Romans chapter 3 says. And yet, being guilty sinners, somehow people are convinced that if there's enough time go that goes by, that we won't be guilty any longer. Can time actually remove a person's guilt? If you commit a crime, are you going to be less guilty of that crime in a year? Would you be less guilty of that crime in 10 years or 100 years or even 1,000 years? Oh, you're, you're never going to lessen the idea of guilt. You're going to be guilty no matter what. And when you break God's law, you're guilty of that. And it doesn't make any difference how much time that goes by, you're still going to be guilty. And there you find the reason that the Bible teaches that hell is an eternal place. And that's because no one becomes less guilty, though they spend millions upon millions of years in that awful place. And so do you know why Jesus taught so much about hell? It was because he was the only one who could solve the problem of man's guilt. 
He's the only one that can get rid of guilt. And what he did was he went to the cross and he suffered hell in order to remove our guilt from us, to take our sins upon him. And so all the wrath of God was poured out on Christ rather than being poured out on us who believe in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the righteousness of God, what is that? Well, God's not a sinner. God is never guilty of sin. He, he, the righteousness of God is to be free from guilt. And that's what you get when you believe in Jesus Christ. Now, we notice something else here about the sovereignty of God. If I can return to that subject for a minute that although Jesus knew exactly what Judas would do, and every action of Judas was his own to do, yet every one of his actions was in the divine plan of God. Jesus chose Judas for this purpose. And yet we see by what he says in verse number 24, he held Judas accountable for his own actions. Jesus saw no conflict with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And perhaps there's not a clearer statement anywhere in the Gospel of Matthew than this verse about how God is sovereign, yet man still remains responsible. And when John chapter 10, we see exactly the same thing. I don't have time to go to that passage today, but Jesus told the Pharisees who did not believe in him, he said, you don't believe in me because you're not my sheep. Well, in other words, he hadn't chosen them to believe. But at the same time, he held them fully accountable for their unbelief. Now, I know you might not like that, but Jesus taught it. Jesus never said that you have to understand the dichotomy between sovereignty versus responsibility. But we do have to believe it. And that's a very key, crucial issue about faith in God. Because what too many people want to do is to apply human reasoning to what God should do. That they want to apply what they think to the problems of Scripture and try to solve these things and make them work out the way they want them to work out. But God says, your thoughts are not my thoughts. He said, my ways are above your ways. And this is what happens when we get into doctrines like election and predestination and those kinds of things that people want to make their own way there. They can't accept that. Some of them will go and say, well, if if that's true, then man is just a robot. Well, if if man is just a robot, according to Jesus Christ, you're a fully accountable robot. Stop trying to figure these things out. We need to do what the Lord says. Believe them for the word's sake, as Jesus said. And then we have no problem with what he did. He taught it, so believe it. Now, I think it's interesting that Charles Spurgeon, who is perhaps the greatest preacher since the first century, never was able to solve the question of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And so he put it like this. He said that that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are like train tracks. One side, one rail, is God's sovereignty. The other rail is human responsibility. And those two run on parallel tracks and they never meet. But as you look off into the distance, if you look at train tracks, they seem to merge together. And so Spurgeon said that's the way it is with God's sovereignty and human responsibility, that it merges together in eternity and that's where we're going to understand how it works. That's when all the secrets are going to be revealed to us. So it's not for us to find out God, it's for us to believe God. Not believe in God, but to believe God. 
And those are two vastly different things. The former, to believe in God, that's the belief of men and devils. They believe in God. To believe God, that's the substance of actual saving faith. Now, the fourth observation of the passage is the loyalty of the disciples. Verse 22, And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And this has to be the most shocking news yet. The disciples finally got this. He's going to be crucified. And it doesn't really become, it doesn't become real to them until he says, there's going to be a betrayer. Someone is going to turn me in. Someone's going to turn against me. And so not until they, he nailed down the act of betrayal did they really understand this. Now they might have easily believed that an enemy from without would betray him. And there were plenty of those. And then there were also other believers besides them. You look at Luke chapter 10, and there Jesus sent out 70 70 to evangelize. Maybe it's one of the 70 that'll turn against him. Maybe one of them will betray the Lord. But Jesus said, no, it's one of you. How shocking it was to find out that it's one of these 12 who were his intimate companions. For three years, they'd walked with him. They'd been by his side. And for all of that time, none of them would dare think that they would ever betray the Lord. At least not until this night. Now, it's true, the disciples were thick-headed at times. But there was something that happened on this particular night that showed them what they really needed to do. What, What they really needed was to challenge their own faith. That they needed to look deep into their own hearts to see if they could actually be the one that would betray Christ. Now, you remember, if you've been studying with us, that the disciples were always arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And they were always trying to set themselves up. They were going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And they had those kinds of discussions when Jesus was talking about his death. He he was talking about his death, but that was going over their heads. And in the middle of those conversations, they were thinking about themselves. Well, it's hard to figure out the exact chronology of the supper, but evidently, one of these discussions came up again. One of the arguments started again. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And it happened on the very night that Jesus was so burdened about what he was going to go through. He was going to the cross. He would suffer the awful pains of death. Even the prospects of it, thinking of it in the garden, weighed heavily upon him. And yet on this very same night, the disciples had entered into another discussion about who is greatest in the kingdom of God. And so you know what Jesus did? John 13 describes it for us. Jesus took a towel, he put it around his waist, and then he took a bowl of water, and he bent down and he began to wash the disciples' feet. He showed them the humility of a servant rather than the bragging rights of a king. And when he was through with that demonstration, he had prepared their hearts for the supper. And he showed them that in each of us there's a heart of pride. That in every one of us there's evil, there's self-assurance. And we we rely on those things and we are actually sinners against God. There's evil that lurks in our hearts. And the disciples began to realize that, that at the same time that they were arguing about who's the greatest, they were walking with the person who was the most humble in all of time, all of the world. And so it was at this point that they realized their potential for wickedness. That it lied in each of them. One of them could be the betrayer. And so they began to ask with horror, 
Lord, is it I? And what a thought that that is. Peter could have been the one. John could have been the one, or James, or Matthew. Any of them could have been the one who would betray. And so they said, Lord, is it I? Let me remind you of a parallel injunction that's given by Paul when he preached to the, or taught the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper. Uh, those of you that are members of the church and come to the communion, you know this well. We read it each time we partake. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26 through 28. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Very astounding statement. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The reason that we examine ourselves before we partake of the Lord's Supper is because there's not a one of us that sometime has not betrayed Jesus Christ. Now, we do it often. Every day that we live ought to be a day of repentance and a day of cleansing so that we don't offend the Lord. And Jesus showed them that when he washed their feet. These are men who are believers in him. They're men who are justified. They, they have their faith in Christ. But he showed them that as we go through the world every day, we gather to ourselves sins that defile us. And we have to be cleansed from those sins in daily confession and repentance. And so the disciples learned the lesson here in the foot washing episode. And so here they are in this passage, and none of them is bragging at this point, we can't commit this sin. None of us will commit this sin. No, they were humbled by what Jesus did, and what they wanted for him was to ferret out their sin, remove that sin from them, lest they should be the one who do the de did the deed. Now, if you're a Christian, this is what you have to do. In daily repentance, you need to bow your head and bend your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask for his cleansing from your sins. That's an ongoing thing. And if you don't do that, then you're going to find yourself going astray. And I promise you this, there's not a hole, a spiritual hole that you can't fall into. You have to stay close to the Lord and confess your sins to him. Now, fifthly, we notice... The identity of the traitor. Verse 23. And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Now the disciples were all sitting around, or rather, they were reclining around the table. Now you see the picture of the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. He's wrong about this. They weren't sitting at a table. The table was low to the floor, and the disciples, as they, lay, as they were out on the floor, they would recline and prop themselves up on, on one elbow as they ate. Now, here's the order of who's sitting there at the table, at least this part of it, that Judas was right next to Jesus. Now, he wasn't way off at the end of the table where you expect he might be. He wasn't way off sitting by himself somewhere and thinking about what he was going to do. He's probably thinking about it, but he wasn't way off from the rest of the disciples. He was right next to Jesus, in fact, in the place that was considered the highest seat because it was right next to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, on the other side of him is the Apostle John. Those two are the closest to Jesus. Jesus said, the one who dips his bread in the, drips his, dips his sop in the dish, that's the one who's going to betray me. But that was nondescript. 
because all of the disciples would reach over and put their bread into the dish and they would eat it. So that's not really a description of who it was. So that prompted John to inquire further. He asked Jesus, now, who is this? What do you mean? John's the only one, actually the only one of the disciples who found out beforehand that Judas was the one who would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the two that are sitting closest to Jesus. They're the only ones that actually hear the conversation at this point. Now, you have to remember that the rest of the disciples are totally clueless. When we read this, We've got the story in front of us. We know what's going to happen. We've got the whole entire narrative. But the disciples don't have a New Testament to read. They don't know anything that's going on here. So they're totally baffled about who could be the one who betrays. And Jesus never identified Judas as the betrayer at any time. Not back in chapter 10, when he chose the 12 disciples, did Jesus say, now Judas, he's the one that's going to betray me. Matthew lets us know that as an afterthought. They didn't know it. They didn't suspect him. Jesus didn't name him three years before when he chose him. He didn't name him three minutes before they dipped their bread in the sop. He didn't name him three hours before he was there in the garden to betray him to his enemies. And so you think, well, why? Why didn't Jesus say who it was? Why didn't he name him? Well, I want you to consider this, that Jesus was filled with, with compassion. Now, you remember the human responsibility I talked about just a moment ago? Jesus gave him another opportunity to repent and believe. Even though he'd already collected his money for the betrayal, and even though he sat there with his feet under the table, so to speak, with all the malice and hatred in his heart that he harbored for Jesus, still Jesus gave him the opportunity to repent and believe. And you know what that tells us? It tells us it doesn't matter what you've done. It tells us it doesn't matter how great your sins are. You may think there is never forgiveness for what I've done. But the Lord Jesus says otherwise. Even the person who would betray him, if he had come and repented of that sin and placed his faith in Jesus Christ, that sin would have been forgiven him. Now notice again, and let me return to sovereignty here, that there are many people who talk about the sovereignty of God but they give lip service to it when it comes to the, to the area of repentance and faith. Somehow the sovereignty of God gets thrown out of the window when it comes to repentance and faith. And what they'll say is that it's purely my decision to come to Christ and I can come at any time. Well, they would do very well to look at Judas. Never did anybody have as much opportunity as Judas. Nobody has seen what Judas saw. Nobody that's alive today ever sat down at a meal with Jesus. Nobody has personally heard his voice and personally listened to his words of wisdom. No one has ever heard him described as being full of grace and truth. There's nobody who can make the comment today after hearing him, nobody ever spoke like this man. Nobody has ever ridden in a boat with him and seen him still the sea, calm the storm. Nobody has ever heard him give the command to stop the wind. Nobody has seen the countless miracles that he performed day after day. Judas saw all of that and he did not believe. And so do you think that you could come to Christ, that you could make a decision for Christ when Judas didn't? Do you think out of a sinful heart that's just like his, that, uh, that you can just come to Christ based upon something that you've heard about him? Is your sinful will going to produce a faith in you not having all of the advantages that Judas had? 
Now, I want you to hold on to that thought for just a minute as we get the last part. Number six is the hypocrisy of the liar. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Now, each of the disciples said, Lord, is it I? And Judas would have stuck out like a sore thumb if he hadn't also asked, Lord, is it I? Jesus knew what he would do, and Judas knew that he knew what he would do. But I suppose that to avoid being beaten to, being beaten to a pulp by the rest of the disciples, he was going to ask the question, is it I? He continued to conceal his identity. Now they would for sure know that it was him unless he said, is it I? But now I want you to notice the change in the wording of his question. In verse 22, the others asked, Lord, is it I? And Judas asked, Master, is it I? He just couldn't frame his mouth around the word, Lord. He didn't believe in him to be the Lord. And Judas is like many people today. People admit, oh, Jesus, he's a good teacher. Jesus is a good example for us. He's kindness and he's generosity. He's those things personified. But they'll not admit that he is Lord. And the reason that they don't is to, if they admit that he's Lord, it means they must surrender to his will. It means that he's over them. It means that he controls them. And you mark this well, there is no salvation in Jesus Christ unless you surrender to him as Lord. Now there is a, it's a Judas who says, oh, I admit to your uncommon abilities, but I'm not going to forsake everything for you to be my Lord. Judas said, master, that word is the same as teacher, same as rabbi. And do you remember that the chief priests and the elders also facetiously referred to Jesus as rabbi? Now let's go back to the thought I asked you to hold. Is it possible for you to come to Christ without the advantages of Judas when he didn't come with them? Can you make a solitary decision as an act of your will apart from God to come to Jesus Christ? Well, don't let me answer that for you. You might not like my doctrine if I answer it for you. So let's see what the Apostle Paul had to say about it. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 12:3. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed and, underline it, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. You're never going to come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit acts on your stubborn will and causes you to surrender to him as Lord. It even goes so far to say in Ephesians 2 verse 8 that your faith is a gift from God. You didn't get that on your own. It says in Acts chapter 11 verse number 18 that God grants repentance unto life. Faith and repentance come from God. And so who are you to say, it's all me. I decided to do this. Never think that you're a whit better than Judas was. Now, there might be people in the room today that aren't real disciples of Christ. And I, and I don't want to make any excuses for Judas. And you'll see as we go through the story there, there were real fears about what was going to happen to these disciples. If Jesus was killed, then you could expect they're going to be next. They would. I mean, they're next on the list because the Jews wanted to be rid of this sect of Nazarenes forever. They wanted no more headaches with the, with, the, with the disciples. 
And so later, Peter, who's always at the head of the disciples and all of the list, denied Christ. The others forsook him and fled. So don't think that you would do anything differently. You wouldn't. Only by the grace of God did Peter return with a sorrowful, repentant heart and in deep contrition came back to Jesus. Judas never did that. And so Jesus said, it had been better for him if he'd not been born. Now let me close with this right here today. Is it better that you had not been born? Well, you might have a good job. You might live in a nice house and drive a fancy car. You might be very happy with your life and the way that things are going. But do you know that it might be better? It's entirely possible that it's better that you had not been born. You see, without Jesus Christ, you're going to wake up into an eternity in which you're going to rue the day that you ever took your first breath. Hell is an eternal place. The guilt is never going to go away. And what I said earlier, the guilt is there forever. Ten million years in hell, you're not any closer to getting out. And that's because guilt goes on forever. And it stays. It will always stay. Today it stays on you if you are not a believer in Jesus. And so one day you're going to stand before God's judgment bar and you'll not ask, is it I? You'll not ask, is it I? You'll say, it was me. I betrayed Jesus Christ. And Christ the judge is going to say, away with you. Because I gave you an opportunity to repent and believe on November 23rd, 2014. On that day, you were at the Berean Baptist Church, and I even invited you to sit down for a meal with God's people. And yet, you turned away. You wouldn't give thanks for the wonderful provisions that I have given. You did not believe. Now listen, folks, what Christ came to do was to die for guilty sinners. He came to take sin on him. He went to the cross and you have to look to that cross and put your faith in Christ. And if you do, he promises that he'll take away the guilt of your sins. Who are you to blame if you don't believe? It falls on you. You're the one that's responsible. And now, did you know this? I have just made you doubly responsible today because I've told you what you need to do. Get out from under the guilt of your sin. There will be no excuses. You can't say, well, I never heard about that. I didn't know what to do because I've just told you today it makes you doubly responsible. Now, what you have to do is to recognize what you've done, that you've sinned against the holy God, and you have to look up to him and you have to say, Lord, I did it. Lord, I'm guilty. Lord, be merciful to a sinner such as I. If you say, Lord... Is it I? That's when he'll say, yes, it is, but I'll forgive you, and I will cleanse you. I'll make you free. Just trust me. Believe me. I did this for you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what a beautiful thought to think on this Thanksgiving celebration that Jesus came into the world to save sinners all of us are guilty. All of us, none of us can escape the guilt of our sin. And you have provided a way that that can be taken care of. And you say, come to me. You didn't ask us to do anything. You didn't ask us to do acts of penance. You didn't ask us to do some great thing. You didn't ask us to cr uh, carry crosses around in the street or anything. You said, believe. Believe me. Trust me. Trust me for what I've said. 
Lord, open someone's heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ today. May we stop trying to do this ourselves and know that we have to depend entirely upon you. You save us, not we ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. Bless us, Lord, as we sing, as we fellowship in just a few minutes. May your Holy Spirit be with us today. Convict us of our sins and draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.